The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. understand them in light of their historical context, in light of what's going on within the history of Israel when God moved upon these men to write the things that they wrote. Uh, the prophets can be difficult to read at times, and often it's because we don't understand the setting in which they were written. Uh, getting that insight helps us to understand what's written. Uh, I hope and pray has helped you to apply it to your life. Realize all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, instruction, correction, um, training in righteousness, that we, we can be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. The Old Testament written for our admonition, our edification, even tonight, especially in this chapter, we're going to look to concluding this prophecy from Micah. I, I am finding, as we've navigated our way through this book, uh, it, it is maybe one of my favorite books of the prophets. Um, chapter 7, even this evening's message, uh, just a beautiful message of the gospel, even in the Old Testament, of God's loving kindness, of God's grace and God's mercy that He extends to sinners when sinners repent. When sinners turn to the Lord, He removes the wrath that is due to us and He, he gives to us forgiveness. If you've been with us, you know Micah has, in chapter 1, even began the book by putting forth this illustration of a courtroom. A courtroom that he really emphasizes in chapter 6, where we looked at last week, where God is the one who's bringing accusation against his people. He wrote last week even of the mountains being called by God to be the witness to the fact that God had been so good to His people, that God had poured out such loving kindness upon them throughout freeing them from Egypt and leading them through the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land. And His question to them, go back to, to chapter 6 and verse 3, is, Oh my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. What is it that I've done to you that's turned your heart so far from me? God says, All I have shown you is my faithfulness. And yet the people turned away from God. They ignored the commands of God and the law He'd given. They embraced idolatry. And they really just, they were living no differently than the pagan nations around them at this day and age in which Micah is writing. Injustices abounded. The, the judges were judging for bribes. Even the prophets and teachers were teaching for money and giving good prophecies to those who could pay and bad to those who could not. And it was a, a greatly wicked culture that was even of the people of God. And God has brought a charge and an indictment against them, that courtroom setting where God has been the accuser, they are on the defense, and all of God's goodness, and even the mountains themselves testifying against them. And yet, this evening, what we're going to see in chapter 7 is, is a drastic change happens. God goes from being the accuser who is rightly accusing them for their sins, and we're going to see God becomes the one who stands up as their advocate. 
That God goes from being the one who is rightly charging them because of all of their sin and iniquity to the one who says, I will pay for it. And I will free you from it. And I will forgive you and redeem you and restore you. Let's read the passage, and I want us to see as we even read it and reflect back on it tonight, that what God has written for Really, Micah speaking here as we read is, is Israel corporately. He's identifying himself with the people of God. That what Micah writes of Israel and Israel's repentance and turning to God and finding salvation is really true of us even individually and personally tonight in this master plan of God's salvation and His redemption. Let's read it and reflect back through it this evening. Chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I'm like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince, who should judge righteously, the prince asks for gifts, and the judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, that is the day of the prophet, and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore, Micah says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover uh, her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. And the day when your walls are to be built, and that day the decree shall go far and wide, and that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain, yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it, as for the fruit of their deeds, and for the fruit of their deeds. Verse 14, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. 
Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgressions of the remnant of His heritage. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give the truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. We see in this passage a prophecy and even example of Micah as he identifies even with the sins of the people of Israel under the judgment of God that was going to come because of their sin. And yet all the while, as he has already prophesied over and over again, God would be at work even through that great judgment to lead them to repentance, to lead them to an understanding of the sinfulness of sin, a return to God, whereby God would take their their turning to Him and greatly bless them and forgive them and renew them and restore them. We see a pathway here from going from the despair of sin to the glory of grace. From the pain of sin even to the delight of salvation. Maybe you're here tonight and there is sin that is in your life and the misery of sin that accompanies sin is is heavy upon your life and upon your heart and you know the shame of being a sinner. If any of us are honest, we all can look at our life and say, I'm not what I ought to be. There are things in my life that God is still working on. There are sins in my life that God is, is still of His grace working to rid my life and my heart of. And some can look back at seasons of their life before they knew Christ, especially that were filled with great sin. And maybe you are here and you are without Christ and in great sin, as Israel was. What we find in these words is a pathway to, to go from the misery of sin and the shame and the agony of the the the. the, the just desperation that sin causes in a life and in a heart to a place of joy and happiness in in the Lord, to, to a place of even rejoicing in the, the grace that God has given, that God has bestowed on us, a place of, of, of blessing, a place of, of contentment in the Lord, that it is God's desire for us to get from place A to to that place, from a place of sin and pain and suffering to a place of delighting in Him, a place of, of contentment in Him. This evening I hope to help you turn the pain of your sin into the delight of your salvation. The pain of whatever sin it is that may be on your mind, even now as I'm talking about things that are sinful, that are against God, that, that you know you're guilty of, to go from a place where you're weighed down and burdened and in, 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 in just in, in humility over that to a place of, of contentment and joy and delight even in God. You can do that, and God wants that to happen. He, he wants that of you. And in this chapter, we find the pathway to it. We really find the gospel, even as we find it in Christ, unfolded for us here in the Old Testament. Notice first verses 1 through 4. 
If you're going to turn that sin and pain of sin into the delight of salvation, you must confess your sin. Chapter 7 begins, Woe is me. Now this is Micah writing, the prophet of God who is living for the Lord in the midst of that day and age. And I believe he is speaking of himself because all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But he's speaking of himself as an Israelite even more so. He's speaking even corporately here of of the people of God and of his identity with the people of God. He comes to a place of recognizing and leading the people of Israel even to recognize just how desperate they were. Just how wicked they were in the eyes of God and what follows from this opening expression that just draws attention to just how bad they are is a description, a confession of their sin. A confession of just how bad they had gotten. What does it mean to confess sin? It means to say the same thing as God when it comes to your sin. We don't like to confess We like to justify. We don't like to say the same thing about sin and and admit before God what we are and what we are doing is sinful, is wrong, is wicked. We would rather say we're justified in doing it. If you only understood what they did to me, if you only understood this is what's going to make me happy or this is the reason why I'm doing this, we love to explain it away. We love to justify it. But if we're going to really come to God and have our sin dealt with, we must first come to this place of confession, of humble, broken admission before God of just how sinful we really are. Woe is me, and he says, for I am like those who gather summer fruits and glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat. He's dealing with those that came in the, the, the early summer even. There was a time where some fruit could be produced. The typical harvest was later in the fall. But, but they'd go in, and, and at that time there wasn't a lot of fruit, and sometimes there was no fruit. And he says there, there's no fruit of righteousness left. There are none who are doing right in the eyes of God. Verse 2, he explains this illustration. The faithful man, the godly man, has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. Now Micah could have taken the approach of Elijah and said, I'm the only godly one left of all the people in depression and, and thinking he's it and everybody else has departed from God. That's not what Micah does here. Micah recognizes even his own sin before a holy God. And he says... Even as Isaiah had wrote, and even as as Paul would later quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He, He says there's not a faithful man on the earth. There's no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. And he's now identifying corporately even as the, the people of Israel and the sins of Israel. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Every man was out to trap and ensnare for their own bettering and their own selfish ways. That they may successfully do evil with both hands. This wasn't just a half-hearted effort of sin. This was full-blown iniquity. The prince asks for gifts and the judge seeks a bribe and the great man utters his evil desires. They scheme together and the best of them, the strongest of them is like a thorn bush and it it just uh, a thorn head, sharp and cutting. And the day of your prophet, the watchman, and the day of punishment's coming, surely in their uh, perplexity this is 
going to occur. He's, he's speaking in confession, admission of sins. He's leading the people of Israel to come to understand the sins that they had committed and just how bad they were before God. Proverbs 28 and 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Whoever covers his sins will not prosper. We try to justify ourselves before God. We try to explain away our sins as if they're really not a big deal. It says you will not prosper. The one who confesses, the one who comes to see the sinfulness of their sin, and just how wrong it is, says God's the one who sees that. As you forsake them, He will have mercy. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, we read these words of David speaking of his great sin with Bathsheba, even committing adultery and even having her husband murdered. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. But then he says, What happened? I acknowledged my sin to you. David got to the point of confession, of owning up to his sin. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what did God do? And He forgave the iniquity of my sin. Augustine said it right when he said, The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. The, the confessing of, of, of evil works is the beginning, the first beginning of good works. The, the, the first part of coming to God is first understanding your need to turn to Him. The first step of, of, of seeking forgiveness is to come to, to realize and understand and confess the reason why you need forgiveness, to see the sinfulness of your sin. You realize tonight that no person in this room is without sin. From the sweetest lady in the room to the worst, who am I going to look out here, to the worst scoundrel in the room. I better just keep panning the room. All are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can stand before God and who we are and, and say, because of who I am and what I've done and how I've lived, I'm right in your eyes. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. If you're not to the place where you don't understand that tonight, I beg you, look to the Word of God and come to understand it. You're not okay. You're not just neutral in the eyes of God. You're a sinner. We've all sinned even in Adam, when Adam fell, and we're all born in sin because of the sin of Adam. And I don't have to teach my kids how to lie and how to be selfish. They know it naturally because naturally our hearts are sinful. Examine your life at all and you'll see the evidences of that over and over and over and over and over again. And the first step of, of changing from the pain of sin to the delight of salvation is to come to that place of understanding, I am not okay. I live in a broken world and I am a broken person in the midst of a broken world. I need fixed as you do. We aren't what we ought to be. Confess your sin first of all before God. Next, verses 5 through 10, we see 
Micah turns from this confession of sin to calling out to God. He, he turns from, from admitting and describing even the sinfulness of sin to, to turning to God and, and calling out to Him, even though they were sinners, to save them, to plead His case, to, to deliver Him from even the judgment that He rightly deserved. Notice verse 5. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. That's speaking of his wife, even. For son dishonors father, and daughter rises against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now, here in these verses, Micah is both showing the depravity of that day and age, just how sinful things were, that even families were mistreating families, fathers, sons, and sons' fathers, and daughters' mothers, and daughter-in-laws, mother-in-laws, a man's enemies or the men of even his own household. It's showing just how depraved that day and age was, but he's also showing in these words just how unable all of these other people were to deliver from sin. None of these people were able to save Micah or the people of Israel from their sin. He's saying they're all, they're all sinners. They're evidencing their sin even in their own lives. Don't, don't trust in a friend because the friend was untrustworthy. The friend would turn his back on you and even slander you and, and stab you in the back or put your confidence in a companion because they, would, they were untrustworthy. Even a father to son and husband to wife and daughter to mother and daughter-in-law to mother-in-law. It was such a wicked day and age that that was being evidenced all over, but it implied also in these words is the fact that none of those relationships were able to save you. None of those people would be able to deliver you from the problem of your sin. So after confessing sin and admitting to it and acknowledging it, he says, the friend isn't going to be able to save you or the companion or even your own spouse or even father and mother. What does he say? Therefore, verse 7, what do I do? I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We go from the place of woe is me to the place of I know you're not the solution. And I know you're not the solution. And I know even I'm not the solution. I know this church Ultimately, in and of itself, it's not the solution. Who is the solution? I, I, will, I will look to the Lord. I'm going to turn to God Himself. And I will wait for the God of my salvation, the One who, who can save, the One who truly can forgive my sin, the One who can redeem my soul. I will turn, I'll look to Him, I'll wait for Him, why? Because I know He will hear me. As I confess my sin to Him, and I turn and call out to Him, I know He's going to answer. And so He says to His enemies who were mocking Him, mocking Israel in the midst of their judgment that was going to befall them, He says, Do not rejoice over Me, My enemy. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He acknowledges again in confession, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against Him. 
There's a judgment that is coming because of my sin, but in that judgment I'm being led to repentance, and in that repentance I'm turning to God and calling out to Him, and I'm going to sit in this place of judgment, how so, how long, until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. Until the God who has brought accusation against me in the courtroom steps out from the the, the, the little booth that the plaintiff sits in bringing the case before the court, he steps out and he then advocates for the one who is guilty. Only when the one who is guilty finally says, I did it. Picture it in a courtroom and the case has been built and the, the, the one that's the plaintiff is bringing the arguments against the person, against their guilt and against how wicked they've been and the, the offense against this crime they've committed. And finally, the one who's being accused admits it and says, I admit it, I confess, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, condemned and clean, unworthy. And in that moment, the one who's breathing the accusation, he, he turns from accusation and indictment, and he says, I will plead his case. I will stand in his defense. Why would one ever do such a thing? Why would God ever forgive unworthy sinners? And the sinner repents. And the sinner turns and calls out to God for His grace and His mercy. What we find is God gives it. God pleads the case and God executes justice. But He does so in a way where He even, as we'll see in a moment, bears the penalty of that justice Himself. So Micah says, He will bring, forth, bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. I'll see God's vindication. And then the one who's my enemy who is laughing and mocking and saying, where is my God? Where is the Lord your God? She will be judged. God will judge Babylon and Assyria. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a quotation from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew and Gentile alike. And we can apply that all that we'd like to apply it in every area we can think of. Every race and ethnicity. Every language group. Every person who is rich or poor. Every person who is educated or uneducated. Whosoever. Whosoever gets to that place of coming to understand the sinfulness of their sin before God and, and in their, the weight of that and the brokenness of that, they confess it before God and they, they just simply turn to Him and say, God, You're the God of my salvation. Will You forgive me? Will You save me? What you find is God steps out behind the, the chair of the, the accuser who's rightly bringing in the charge and the indictment and He, he steps forth to plead your case. Not because of your own worth. Not because of your own righteousness, but because of His own love for you. You realize that every consequence of sin, every judgment that we endure, every pain and suffering of this life, 
death itself even that has been given as that ultimate consequence, all of that has been given of God to awaken our hearts to the sinfulness of sin and turn our hearts to Him. That God desires our salvation and not our condemnation. You, you realize that even in the garden, go back to the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, He expelled them from the garden. And He says, I'm not going to let you eat of the, the tree of life lest you live forever in this sin. Death will come upon you. There's an end to your existence. There's a time frame to your rebellion. And even that impending doom of death and even eternal damnation is meant to awaken us to the reality we're not gods. We're not gods who can do what we want however we want for as long as we want. There is a finite amount of time that we've been given. We will die, and after this, the judgment. And then even within life, he says, Adam, you're going to work of the soil of the ground, and it's not going to bear fruit and, and, and produce like it has with ease. It's going to be sweat and toil. And Eve, you're going to endure the agonies of, of even motherhood, of bearing child children and, and pain, and your desire will be over the man, and the man will be over you. And, and there's going to be friction now in this God-ordained relationship of husband and wife, man and woman that God had created, it's not going to be the Garden of Eden anymore. Why not? Because you will not continue in your sin and not come to a recognition of the, the badness of it. God, even of His grace and of His mercy, says death shall come and says pain and suffering will be a part of your daily life in order that you might be awakened to the sinfulness of sin, to your need of, of redemption. To understand the brokenness of this life and the brokenness of who you are. God desires salvation. Verse 18. We'll read it ahead of time. Go to 18 and verse, the ending of verse 18. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. That our God is a God who delights not in the condemnation of sinners, not in the destruction of the evil, Ezekiel says, but when the, the, the wicked turn, when the wicked repent and find life and live. That's the heart of God for you and for me tonight. Not that you continue in your sin and that God has to, at that end of, of your life, condemn you eternally to hell. God desires salvation. God delights in His mercy being known and His mercy being experienced. And He has given the consequences of sin even in this life that we might come to that place of, of seeing the sinfulness of sin, of confessing it before God, and of calling out to Him, God, I need Your mercy. God, I need Your salvation. I will look to You. I will wait upon You because I know You and You alone are the one who can save me. Confess your sin. Turn to God. Find His salvation. And then notice lastly, rejoice in His mercy. Rejoice in His mercy. We're not going to look in depth to verses 11 through 17 just to walk you through them real quick. In verses 11 through 13, it's speaking of even in a prophetic fashion, Ezra and Nehemiah, when the walls will be rebuilt to the city. And in a partial way, there's a fulfillment of, of the restoration of Israel in that day and age. It's speaking to even a fulfillment within the church and within the millennial kingdom and within the new heaven and new earth that is to come. All of that, I would say, is entailed in the words that are written there about God restoring His people and God um, being with them and working wonders 
um, with them or for them as in the that he did in the day of Egypt. And then in verses 16 and 17, all the enemies that are mocking them will be judged and condemned. But I, I want to draw our attention to verses 18 through 20. What an ending for this book. To come to a place after you've confessed your sin and after you've called out to God for salvation and received it, come to a place of rejoicing always in His mercy. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like our God? Who out there is comparable to the God of our faith, the one true living God, the one who is the sovereign creator of all the universe, and yet the one who loves us so, so much. The one who does not delight in condemnation and in destroying us, but who delights in our salvation even when we fail Him time and time and time again. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? The remnant of His heritage meaning those that come to see the sinfulness of their sin and seek salvation from the Lord. Who, who is a God like our God who forgives our sins and passes over them, passes over our transgressions. Israel did not deserve restoration. Israel did not deserve salvation. And yet, God promises it will be so. He does not retain His anger forever because He's a God that delights in mercy. He doesn't delight in the destruction of the sinner. He delights in the salvation of the sinner. He will again have compassion on us. And He'll subdue, he'll, he'll capture our iniquities even. And, and what will He do with them? You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham that you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Who is a God like our God who forgives as He forgives, who has such grace and who has such mercy. No matter how long you've been saved, I, I hope and I pray I never get to the place where I fail to be amazed at the grace of God. I hope and I pray you, no matter how long you've been saved, get to a place where you fail to be amazed at the grace of God that's forgiven you, that saved you. There's a grave danger in being saved for a while, that you get to a place of thinking you're a pretty good person. You've done okay in your life. You've lived a pretty good in a pretty good way. And that, that all of a sudden you, you begin to... It's not intentional, but you neglect the grace of God. You belittle the grace of God. And you begin to think and act in a way, even though you wouldn't admit it or even confess it, but you, you begin to act in a way where you've earned it. Where... Your life is justified to such a degree that it's, it's, a, it's a, something you're entitled to now because of the way you are and the way you live. Danger. Be warned when you get there. You realize our sins ultimately become the impetus of our praise. Our sins ultimately become the impetus, the motivation, the, 
the thrust of our praise to God in humble adoration. It's how God truly turns the ashes into beauty. It's not that the ashes aren't bad and the ashes don't hurt. When you look back to the great sins of your life, some of you can look back to a season of your life where there would be even in human standards great sin and great immorality and great wickedness. And you look back to that and you... You, you know the brokenness of it. You know the hurt and the pain of it. But as you have come to a place of confessing it before God, and you have now found that God, who is the God of salvation, when you turn to Him, forgives you, and His grace and His mercy cover that sin, you realize that sin, by the grace of God, has now been, uh, is now being used to lead you to praise and adoration before God. In, in almost a greater way, than one who has sinned less than you. Now don't you hear me wrong and think, well, this is a motivation to sin. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. This isn't a license to sin or a motivation to sin all the more. But it is a, a truth. As we think about our sins that are great in our lives, that God has forgiven, God takes the brokenness and the ashes of that experience, of that rebellion, of that wickedness, and it becomes a beautiful thing by the grace of God. Because you can be as the one that Jesus speaks of when He says, who loves more the one who's been forgiven? or the one who's been forgiven much. John Newton wrote a lot about this truth. He speaks of the believer dealing with even ongoing sin in his life this way. He says, After a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ. How many of you have failed in living for the Lord since you've been saved? How many of you have sinned since salvation? We all have. And has God turned His back and forsaken? No, He's faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins anew every time. They find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ. Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. They love much because much has been forgiven them. They dare not, they will not ascribe anything to themselves, but are glad to acknowledge that they must have perished a thousand times over if Jesus had not been their Savior, their Shepherd, and their Shield. When they were wandering, He brought them back. When they were fallen, He raised them. When they were wounded, He healed them. When they were fainting, He revived them. By Him, out of weakness, they have been made strong. He has taught their hands to battle and covered their heads in the day of battle. In a word, some of the clearest proofs that they have had of His excellence have been occasioned by the mortifying proofs that they have had of their own vileness. I want to read that again, and I hope you process it. In a word, some of the clearest proofs that they have had of His excellence, God's excellence, have been occasioned, brought about, by the mortifying proofs they have had of their own vileness that they would not have known so much of Him 
if they had not known so much of themselves. When you really have been so far away from God, and you come to realize, even if you by the human standard haven't been that bad, but in the eyes of God, you come to see sin for what it is, and you realize all sin is an eternal offense against a holy God, and you come to understand the sinfulness of your sin, and then you come to realize as you confess and call out to God that God has cast that into the depths of the sea. You can't just go about living your life as if nothing's happened to you. You don't go about living life all the more in sin and enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, having experienced that sort of salvation, that sort of grace, that sort of love. No, the one who understands the sinfulness of their sin and just how depraved they are before God and unable and unworthy that they are to save themselves, and they come to realize only then and in that place the true magnificence of the grace of God and just how loving He is to forgive you and to redeem you as He has. That is the the motivation, the impetus that leads us to rightly worship Him, to rightly praise Him, to rightly live for Him. John Newton worded it this way in another writing of his. He says, Growth in grace means growing in your awareness of your need of it, not getting to a place where you feel like it's no longer necessary. Growth in grace means that you grow in your awareness of your need for it. I need more grace now than I needed when I first was saved or even before I was saved. I need the grace of God daily in my life. Or if it were up to me, I would go astray. I would be the worst of all sinners doing the worst of all sins, if not for God's grace. You grow in an awareness of your need of it. You never get to a place where you feel like His grace is no longer necessary. It's a lifelong it's a lifelong response to, his, to, to gratitude for His grace. It's even an eternal response that we'll be called to where we will forever praise God because He saved sinners like us. All eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the One who died for us to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus quotes verses 5 and 6, which are interesting verses, of the son and the father having separation and the daughter and mother, enemies within their own household. Jesus quotes those verses in Matthew chapter 10 when He's commissioning His disciples out. And He doesn't apply it to their sin. He actually applies it to His coming. I have come that father and son will be divided. and Mother and daughter divided and enemies even within their own household. And it's in an ironic twist of Micah's words here that Jesus is tying Himself to this passage. And He's saying, just as sin divided in that day and age, so will, so will my salvation that I'm bringing. It will divide father and son and mother and daughter and even households as one person may come to understand their need of salvation and what Jesus is going to accomplish and others will not. Just as sin divided, He says, my coming and the salvation I will bring will divide. Jesus is tying Himself to the Scripture in ultimately a way that I could say tonight, I think very biblically, He, he is the grand fulfillment of how God accomplishes this salvation. We can look even to the end and say He is the sea in which God casts our sins. How does God atone and cover the sins 
of His people, Jesus dies for our sins upon that cross. The sins of all of His people. Our sins are covered by His blood. He is the truth, the the way, the life. He's the truth to Jacob. He is the mercy of God to Abraham, which God swore to the fathers from days of old. Jesus is the one who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. If you're here tonight and you've never gotten to a place first of owning up to the sinfulness of your sin and confessing it before God, you need to. You're a sinner and you need salvation. And the beauty of God's Gospel, of His love, is that He is the one that when you confess that sin and turn and turn and call out to Him for forgiveness, He's the one who steps forth from the one who's rightly bringing the judgment upon you to the one who will deliver you. He's the one who gave His Son to die upon a cross, to provide the means by which He can forgive, the means by which your sins can be washed away. If you're here and you've never received that grace and mercy of God, I beg you as we come to an invitation, a closing, get that settled. Turn to God. Confess your sin. Call out to Him to save you. Believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior and find He does. He forgives you when you do that. If you're here like most of us are and you did that, a long time ago for most, don't ever get over the grace of God. And even as we close in this song, just turn to God and say, thank you for your grace. I am an unworthy sinner. Lord, I'm still amazed and I still need your grace today as much as I needed it then, more so even now than I needed it yesterday. Heavenly Father, we come to you and I ask that you would just take your word and just apply it to our hearts and lives. Open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to believe any are in this room and they've never confessed their sin before you, never called out to you for salvation, I pray they would do that now, uh, that they'd get that settled before you, that they'd look to you, they'd turn to you, they'd wait upon you because they know you and you alone are the one who can save them. Lord, for all of us who are saved, I pray you just renew uh, a, a, a gratitude in our hearts, a praise in our hearts for your grace, for what you've done for us, that we'd never get over that, and it would affect every part of our life, even as we leave this place tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name.